This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 19th of May. We had a couple of big topics on the show today. First up, as the world celebrates International Museum Day this week, we found out how the space is developing a pace in the UAE with two of the country's newest attractions, the Museum of the Future and Expo's Pavilions. Plus, we found out how a Turkish education startup has pivoted from organising after-school activities to educating pupils affected by the devastating earthquakes earlier this year. We also paid a visit to an unusual classroom aboard a ship travelling the world and found out how your children could study there in their sixth form. Plus, we found out how your kids could be the next Bill Gates with the team behind Ico Junior. And we celebrated World Cultural Diversity Day with a look at the challenges of a multicultural and multilingual classroom. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to the Agenda and welcome to Eye on Education. It is our special programme that we host every single week for a couple of hours and it's our opportunity to really put the spotlight on education stories uh, and you know, with a local lens. That's the big thing. And we're lucky because there are an awful lot of education stories crossing our desk this week, not least the fantastic news that reading rates in Dubai have increased so much in the last 12 years that the country is now placed sixth in the world. Now, I'm joined in the studio by producer Jennifer Crichton. She's been looking into this story. What's the deal? What's this assessment and how does it work? So it's called the Progress in International Reading Literacy Study. And it shows that by private schools have increased their score by 76 points since 2011. Now, shortened, that is PEARLS, and PEARLS is an international assessment that is held every five years to measure the reading and literacy skills of students enrolled in grade four around the world. Private schools in Dubai scored 566 points in the 2021 study, which is significantly higher than the global average of 500 points. It's the first time Dubai's private schools have featured in the top 10 of the global league table. Dr Abdullah Al-Karam, who is the Director General of the KHDA, congratulated pupils, schools and teachers and described the results as significant, not just because they illustrate world-class teaching and learning, but because they show how well the school community worked together during the pandemic, which is actually when the assessment took place. Very interesting to hear about that. Uh, We will be looking into this subject in a little bit more detail because we will be joined by the KHDA on Monday who will talk us through what changes they made, what strategies they introduced, because there's a real story behind these figures and we're really keen to sort of get into it and, and figure out I mean, also, why is, why is, I mean, there's an obvious answer. You can tell why reading is so important. Like, I could probably answer that in, in simplistic terms. But there's a very specific reason why reading is targeted by teachers and by education boards, because I suppose it feeds into everything else. But we yes. wanted to get into more of the sort of, 
you know, there's there's a high tech version of that. You know, there's a pedagogy in that, and we want to we want to find out a bit more. So that will be happening on Monday. Absolutely. There was also a, a global picture to that study as well, though, wasn't there? Yeah, and the thing with the global picture is that it demonstrates just how big a discrepancy there is internationally, because that very same study has revealed that eight out of ten South African school children still struggle to read by the age of ten. Now that was the nation that ranked in last place out of the 57 countries assessed in that progress in international reading and literacy study. Now, there were 400,000 students took part in that study in 2021. So it is a really huge study. And the results of that mean that illiteracy among South African children has actually risen from 78% in 2016 to 81% now. Now, the country has historically struggled with poverty, inequality and adequate educational infrastructure, according to Education Minister Angie Motsheka. But he also said that school closures during the COVID-19 pandemic had played a significant role in that figure. So it just goes to show you exactly how well the UAE has done and how much other countries have suffered at that point of assessment. It's actually a really interesting sort of time for that assessment to have been carried out. And it does show a real discrepancy among responses to the COVID-19 pandemic in the educational sector globally as well. I would really like to see... Um, those uh, that 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 survey placed next to a survey showing digital opportunities. You know how many people have access to the internet? Yes. Because I think countries, this is my theory, I think countries with really great internet will probably have done better because they would have been able to do that remote learning. And I wonder whether that's one of the reasons why we're seeing these discrepancies. It's it's a very interesting survey. And like I said, definitely something we'll be looking into a bit more on Monday. How about uh, a slightly more sort of upbeat story, at least uh, from a global perspective, because there's a teaching prize being introduced for the eighth year running, isn't there? That's right. And it is one of the world's biggest teaching prizes. It's the Global Teacher Prize. And for 2023, teachers in the UAE can now apply. That prize is one million dollars. Goodness me. I know. The award is organised by the Varki Foundation in collaboration with UNESCO and in strategic partnership with Dubai Cares. Last year's winner was US teacher Kesia Thorpe, who opened up college education for low-income, first-generation American immigrant and refugee students. Yeah, talking about graduates, 750 female students this week graduated from the Dubai Medical College and the Dubai Pharmacy College. Good news for the UAE, good news for women. Absolutely, it's the largest batch in the history of the two colleges, which are actually now being merged to form the new Dubai Medical University. That change will also result in the establishment of the country's first state-level immunology laboratory. So lots going on over there and being led by women by the sounds of things. Good news. Right. And finally, an upbeat story for us to finish off with. A 12-year-old Emirati girl is hoping to make her mark on the global sporting stage, but for a really unexpected sport. Absolutely. She's been selected for the UAE National Figure Skating Team. Now, she's a Year 7 student at Abu Dhabi's Al Yasmina Academy. Sarah bin Karam drew attention in March after placing third at the Abu Dhabi Classic Figure Skating Trophy. She's also picked up multiple medals at the Skate Asia contest in Malaysia in 2022 though and she's now set her sights on training at the International ISU Centre for Excellence for Figure Skating in Italy. 
before representing her country on the international stage. Interesting stuff. It would be great to get her on the show, actually. We might try and find out whether she's happy to do interviews, whether whether she's ready, whether her parents are happy for her to come on the radio. It'd be good fun. Uh, meanwhile, oh, a message has just come in. Thank you very much to whoever sent this in. Actually, it says Sriraj sent it in, um, saying just a quick reminder that the MV Logos Hope the world's largest floating library ship has docked in the Abu Dhabi cruise terminal and the public can access it from 4pm until 10pm except on Monday. Now that is in Abu Dhabi. So we've actually been following the journey of that that ship. Uh, we saw it when it was in Ras Al Khaimah and now of course it's arrived in Abu Dhabi. I think Dubai... Dubai was in the middle, I Dubai think. Dubai was in the middle, yeah. was it? Fantastic. But it's now down in Abu Dhabi. If you want to visit the largest floating library ship, head over to uh, Abu Dhabi this weekend. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to Eye on Education. We will see you here into your weekend. Now, from dinosaur skeletons to a very large... Large, very old and apparently very unusual clock. A quick straw poll in our office reveals our childhood memories of museums are as diverse as our team. What, though, was the common thread, you might ask? Well, we all have fond recollections of time spent engaging with the past in museums during our childhood. And while we often think of such galleries as a source of entertainment, the role they play in our children's education is every bit as crucial. And that's why we're looking at International Museum Day. Now, it was officially yesterday, but there are still plenty of ways to get involved. One of them, of course, being a visit to Dubai's Museum of the Future. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined now by Salman Al-Shahan, who is the museum's programming executive, to find out more about what they've got off on, on offer now. And of course, because it is a museum of the future, it is constantly evolving. So I want to find out what's on its way, what's coming, particularly as the temperatures heat up and we run out of things to do with the children. Salman, good to have you with us. How are you? Tell me, what, what role does the Museum of the Future aim to play in the city's education centre? Because I know it's a massive tourist destination, but what about for our kids? So first of all, good morning and thank you for having me on the show. Um, so the Museum of the Future, uh, as, as you, you might all know, has opened uh, last year in February 22, 2022, which is a significant date uh, in itself. And the museum has grown to become a real big part of Dubai uh, as a city. And uh, everything we do actually in the museum uh, is related to education. So wh- whether it's talks, whether it's workshops, we always target uh, that our audience uh, come out with, with something new, something that they learned. So education is a, it plays a big part in everything we do, and we like to call it, if you'd like, uh, edutainment. That's, that's a very clever way of putting it. And I have to say, I've been down to the museum a fair few times uh, yeah. and seen your wonderful sort of arching. There's one of them's a dolphin, isn't it? And then the other one, I can't remember what the other one is. Does it look like a squid? <laughs> it looks like a squid or something. Anyway, so, I mean, how do you make your courses entertaining as well as educational do you actually bring in educators to help you craft your exhibits yeah of course uh, so uh, other than our exhibits which are educating by themselves so um, they're very interactive uh, people learn about the space uh, and the environment as well as mental wellness and when it comes to our workshops and uh, talks with they're very hand-picked experts 
which uh, which really are into education, into educating people, have the latest insights in technology and uh, what's going on in the industries. Okay, so what is coming up on your Museum of the Future program in the coming months? You know, the times when we need our children entertained because it's too hot outside. Yes, of course. So uh, as usual, every month we have plenty of programs available within the museum. Uh, in the coming months, of course, we have uh, our newly uh, our new platform called Future Experts. Uh, Future Experts, uh, we bring in uh, plenty of different industry experts from around the world who hold talks in our in our in our auditorium. Sorry, um, and uh, people get the chance to meet them, network, ask questions, learn about the the future of certain industries. As well, of course, I might mention we're having the summer camp, which is the second edition this year after having a successful uh, summer camp last year. Um, so if parents uh, want to put their kids somewhere, so please uh, sign up for our summer camp as we have a lot of great things in store. Yeah, I'm ready to sign up for that. Can I do that online? Have they launched it? I want to send my kids to you, definitely. No, yeah. However, I, I, I think everyone should uh, pay attention to our social media pages. Our website, website will be announcing the summer camp soon. Yeah, I bet that's the one that sells out pretty quickly. So we'll keep an eye on that one. I mean, yeah. obviously... The Museum of the Future is one of the most famous buildings in the world. And certainly whenever I've been down there for work events, you see the queues of tourists coming through. And and everyone's from all over the world. They're all different ages. How do you go about creating a museum program that that holds appeal for all of these different types of people, you know, with different educational levels? Because, you know, maybe they're three or maybe they're 90. Yeah. So, of course, being in Dubai, which is a multicultural, multinational city, uh, this always this topic always needs to come into mind when we're whenever we're thinking about what programs to put, what workshops to put. Um, we try to keep all our topics uh, something that everyone can relate to, no matter what age group or what nationality they are. Uh, of course, for example, for our workshops, we have specific age groups because some workshops are more complex than others. Yeah, you don't want the uh, the kids going into one on sort of complex DNA or, or some of the talks you've had there have been um, quite detailed about artificial intelligence and the impact, for example, that, that it's going to have on health. Now, there are a large number of new museums and galleries coming to the United Arab Emirates right now. I'm sure that that's a space that you know quite a bit about. What's your view about the the sort of various different museums that are open and the impact that they're likely to have on, I suppose, the development of culture in the country? So, of course, uh, museums are a vital role for uh, every country to have. Uh, They educate people, uh, for example, the traditional museums educate people about the past and what happens, what happened in, in history, not only in the host country, but as well around the world. So it it's a, plays a very vital role in, uh, in educating people. And in our, in our, uh, ter- like in our side, uh, we actually showcase what's, ha- what's going to happen in the future. So this is what makes us different than other museums. And uh, all in all, in general, the increase of the museums and galleries in UAE is, is a brilliant step to take. And uh, it will really help this country move, move forward even further. So you don't see them as competition? <laughs> no, no, no. I don't see them as competition because uh, for me, all museums are, are great to have uh, within the country. Uh, each museum has its own unique feature. Uh, our unique feature is that we showcase the future and not the past. And as well, we're a very interactive museum. 
Yeah, it must be incredibly challenging for you. I remember uh, speaking to your team before the museum even opened and saying, you know, what's going to be in it? And six months before it opened, we, we wanted to know. And yeah. what was so interesting was that to a certain extent, you weren't able to tell us because the future yeah. hadn't happened yet and it was still being developed and it needed to be, you know, it needed to be last minute in many ways because of the diff- the progress being made. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, of course, uh, Everything we do, we try to keep it exciting. We try to keep evolving and bring new things uh, within the museum. Good stuff indeed. And a pleasure to have you on the radio today. Thank you very much for your time. Salman Al-Shahan there. He is the programming executive for the Museum of the Future. Now, the only problem with the Museum of the Future is that you can't decide in the morning, you know, helter-skelter, what are we going to do today? Oh, I know, let's go to the Museum of the Future because it's just too popular. You actually do have to plan a visit. So well worth checking out their website now because obviously it will get busy during the summer holidays. So maybe you ought to celebrate International Museum Day uh, by making a few bookings now ahead of the uh, the kids breaking up for the summer holidays. Or indeed, maybe you could go over Eid because I think we're going to get at least Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off at the end of June. Uh, we will be looking into that in a little bit more detail as the, in the coming weeks as to what you should be getting up to this Eid. But yes, huge thanks there to Salman for talking us through the different programmes at the Museum of the Future. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Now we're using the excuse of International Museum Day to essentially discuss the different ways in which the uh, cultural landscape is developing here in the UAE in the UAE and the way in which it impacts our children and and their education ultimately because of course there's that formal education that they get in schools and then hopefully if their parents uh, get round to it there is that uh, informal education that they get from going to museums and observing cultural experiences and We've just spoken to the team from the Museum of the Future, of course, one of the UAE's newest museums. We're going to talk now to the team behind Expo City Dubai, because, of course, they launched their museums at least a year ago now, or at least the three main pavilions, which will which remained after Expo 2020. Uh, that was, of course, opportunity, sustainability and, oh, my goodness, I can't say it now, opportunity sustainability and mobility that was it those were the three main pavilions and then of course they've opened several more since so let's find out a little bit more about how that museum is landscape how that museum landscape is developing down at the expo city dubai park and joined now by anushka almarzuki who is pavilion director uh, and also in charge of education and culture at expo city dubai joining me now on teams happy friday anusha how are you I'm good. How are you, Georgia? Not bad at all. I'm really interested in the different ways in which the museum sort of sector is developing here in the UAE, not just in uh, Dubai, but also, of course, in Abu Dhabi and in the middle, which, of course, is where Expo City is located. Tell me a little bit more about the sort of the aim of the site post Expo 2020 Dubai when it comes to your pavilions. 
Yes. Uh, as you're aware, Georgia, we opened um, last towards the end of last year and uh, we opened the site to our different visitors. So the public realm is free for visitors and many visitors we've seen come to stroll, run, cycle, walk their dogs, uh, enjoy the site. And the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive and it's that the city has consistently exceeded expectations. Uh, as well, in the public realm, uh, many visitors choose to go to Al Wasl Plaza as well as Surreal, which is our captivating water features, but also to our pavilions, which are Elif, Terra, Women's uh, Pavilion, Visions Pavilion, and the three new stories of nations, which are located at every district of mobility, opportunity, and sustainability. And they do... Um, give an overview of the participations of the different countries during Expo uh, 2020. And today, in celebration of International Museums Day, uh, we're offering visitors free entry to all of our flagship uh, pavilions, including specially curated educational programs and a treasure hunt across uh, our seven attractions framed around this year's of uh, museum sustainability and well-being. And as part of that, uh, many of our visitors, uh, you know, come to Elif, for example, uh, to see the past, present, and the future of uh, mobility and movement and meet the nine meter tall giants of mobility and as well look into uh, the space program that's uh, housed within EDIF uh, and how human-centric cities of the future uh, as envisioned by children. And visitors here at EDIF are encouraged to think more about how their actions can help progress humanity for the better and to ensure that technology is used for good purpose and building stronger links with people and their communities um, in the uh, air cities that they live in. Uh, across from us is also Terra. Terra remains a firm favorite among visitors of all backgrounds, ages, and interests, and it brings Expo City's commitment to sustainability to life through emotional transformative experiences that empower visitors to make more sustainable choices uh, in their own lives. So uh, very relevant. Terra, sorry, sorry, I'll pause you for a moment. So very relevant there, obviously, uh, to yes. the, the landscape at the moment, to what we're all talking about at the moment with uh, the UN COP climate change meeting taking place in November. It, are all your museums developed very much with children in mind? How do you balance that that program between mm-hmm. um, you know children and keeping children and adults interested? Yeah. Children are at the core of um, our offerings, so that uh, we offer them workshops. Uh, we do realize that they are the future, the generation that will make the change happen. So we do have a focus on them through our schools programs, through the workshops that we offer. But we also focus on the adults in that uh, all of our pavilions um, provide the message that we are all responsible for a better tomorrow. doesn't matter what our ages are, but our experiences are immersive in that they empower people to say there is hope, there is a way for change, and you are responsible to start that change. It's it's so interesting because, of course, we were just speaking to the team from the Museum of the Future, and that that museum is also very forward-looking. And I think traditionally, especially if you come from Europe or the States, you might presume that a museum would be backward-looking, you know, looks at history. You know, if you think about even the galleries here, like the Louvre, most of the works of art in there are from, you know, hundreds of years ago almost. Whereas it is interesting that Expo City still also is choosing to look to the future with its exhibits. 
We found through uh, Expo 2020 and the surveys that we did that, for example, 95% of people who visited Terra committed to doing a certain kind of action that will protect the environment, no matter how small it is. And looking at that legacy, we wanted to take that forward into um, as part of uh, the legacy that we have and continue on this educational mission because we see that as something very valuable and as something that uh, not only confirms our commitment towards uh, Expo City's values of sustainability, but it's also something that we as citizens of the world uh, need to do. How about the uh, the women's pavilion? I understand that that's one of the the uh, exhibits that has been kept open, and that's another sort of museum in inverted commas, another space that's also looking to the future, a better life where where men and women are equal. Yes, and the women's museum, the women's pavilion, uh, focuses on the achievements of women and their contributions to society, and how when women contribute and are uh, when they flourish the entire society flourishes as well. And we found through the surveys, again, that we did during Expo 2020 event time, that a lot of people appreciated having uh, such a pavilion dedicated to women. And in some cases, there were people who were more reflective where their views completely changed. We also have Vision Pavilion, which is a very popular pavilion that celebrates His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the Vice President of the UAE and Prime Minister and Ruler of Dubai. And this pavilion uh, looks at his life's work and how it has shaped Dubai as one of the most dynamic and successful cities. Um, And visitors we have found have felt an appreciation of Dubai's evolution over the years and have a better understanding of Dubai's vision from visiting uh, this pavilion. So you're getting a little bit there of the sort of the historical narrative of the country being being created. Tell me just a little bit more about the um, the pavilions that show some of D- Dubai, the Expo 2020 Dubai's best exhibits, because those are the pavilions I haven't seen yet. So we have three stories of nation uh, pavilions, one in each district, mobility, opportunity and sustainability. And they do basically a recap of what was of the participating countries in each district. So, for example, in uh, the mobility district, you will see the mo- one of the moving cubes of the Korea pavilion facades. Um, in the sustainability district, if you had been to the Germany pavilion, you would see, for example, one of the chairs from the uh, Uh, moving uh, room and as well you will see many artifacts that were part of different pavilions that are currently there in each uh, of those um, uh, stories of the nation so it it basically shows you what was the uh, participation of the countries and some of the artifacts that have been kept in those um, pavilions as a form of celebration and uh, a tribute to Expo 2020. So the only problem is, is that none of the pavilions is the massive ball pit from the German pavilion, which is one of the things that my children really wish you'd saved. Uh, I I get into terrible trouble because they went, as soon as it got popular, there were big queues. So we never managed to get in there. Uh, But other than that, there's a lot to look forward to down at Expo 2020 Dubai. Maybe you could just build a great big ball pit at some stage um, for the kids. That would be enormously good fun. Anusha, thank you so much for your time talking us through there. The various uh, pavilions on offer, the various museums that you can visit right now, right here uh, at Expo City Dubai. And as Anusha just mentioned there, 
Access to all of those pavilions is free today. So in 15 minutes, when school ends, maybe you should turn the car straight around and just drive down to Expo. Uh, fantastic to catch up there with Anusha Almarzuki, who's Pavilion Director, also in charge of Education and Culture at Expo City Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Now, you'll remember that back in February, several devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria. More than 50,000 lives were lost, hundreds of buildings collapsed, and dozens of schools were either destroyed or repurposed as shelters for people who'd lost their homes. And that means that more than 7 million children were affected. But amidst all of that disaster and all of the reporting around how difficult it is for people living there, are wonderful stories of a community drawing together because the destruction galvanised at least one education startup to pivot their attention away from after-school activities to specifically education. Now, it's a, a charity called Fundo Mundo. Well, it's a business, rather, called Fundo Mundo. It's run by two brothers from the earthquake-affected zone. Now, they launched this Stronger Together campaign dedicated to the earthquake victims. I'm actually joined by one of the brothers now, Emre Ekmekci, who is co-founder of Fundo Mundo. Lovely to have you join us on Teams, Emre. How are you? More than three months after this earthquake, what is the situation on the ground for children's education? Have the authorities even been able to turn their attention to that yet? Uh, yes, Georgia, thank you for having me on, on, on the program. Uh, yes, it's it has been de- devastating and uh, the recovery is just starting, right? You, you know, the schools have opened up uh, only a m- month ago, but uh, kids are still living in camps. Some of them are displaced into other uh, cities. So the hygiene situation is solved, but there's a longer uh, situation to be a problem to be solved with uh, kids and their ongoing education. And this is where we actually uh, come in because uh, we have a lot of volunteer teachers who are willing to, who want to do something for the region, but who are unable to travel there. And that's the beauty of technology and that's the beauty of startups like like us. We can actually connect people who are willing to help the kids in the region from their desktops, from their laptops, uh, through live education ses- sessions uh, that they can reach out there. We have built actually on the ground uh, what we call tent classes or container classes where kids from the region can come in and uh, sign up for classes. And it actually helps the parents uh, as well who are in the in the region. You know, they can actually have uh, drop their kids off for couple hours in these training uh, uh, sessions, go off and do, do things on, on their own and come back and, and pick up their, their kids. We are, the, the idea actually came from our teachers because right after the earthquake, you know, we started calling our teachers in the region, in Syria and in Turkey and saying, you know, are you okay? And they say, yeah, I'm okay, but what can I do for the kids affected in, in the region? And that's when we started pivoting our startups into actually helping the uh, the kids get more education uh, online and help connect these teachers with the uh, kids on, on the ground. 
I know there is a real concern about this uh, missed generation, specifically in, in war-torn Syria, and, and the desire for that not to be replicated now because of the earthquake zone. So I know there is a real mission there. And what's so interesting is that from a business perspective for you guys, it's totally changed your outlook f- for, your, for the future of your company, hasn't it? Yes, I mean, we, you know, we have always been focused on after-school activities and, you know, drawing classes and, and music uh, classes. But what, what this actually allowed us to, to look at this as a more of an outreach uh, program, and it actually helped us go more cross-border and more, more uh, regional. You know, uh, we, we realized that we can connect uh, a teacher from UAE, and we have volunteer teachers from UAE, with... Uh, you know, uh, students in other regions. And this actually allowed us to, we're now in in, uh, contact with uh, Ukrainian refugees in Poland uh, with, uh, you know, teachers from all over the place. Now we have volunteer teachers from uh, even even the US, uh, you know, helping with with, with time zone uh, differences. So this, and and, as a startup, you know, you start up as 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 a good business, and, and now we see that we can actually make a much bigger impact on our communities across the, across the region. Really fantastic and, and very heartwarming for a Friday afternoon, uh, as it is now, uh, to hear from you guys. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us here right uh, on Ion Education, on the agenda, on Dubai Eye 103.8. That's Emre Ekmekci, the co-founder of Ed, uh, Fundo Mundo. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. This is Ion Education on the agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Now, we've been talking a lot lately about technology. If you are a regular listener to the agenda, you'll know that barely a day goes by without some sort of topic on artificial intelligence. And like it's fair to say, most of the stories are pretty negative. I mean, there is a real fear in many ways that AI might be coming for our jobs, that it might have create this weird dystopian world. You know, we've got the head of OpenAI, Sam Altman. He's the man who created ChatGPT, calling for greater regulation. You definitely get the vibe that, you know, the robots are coming kind of thing. Um, but while none of us can predict the future, one thing is clear is that our children are going to need to be very technologically adept. They're going to need to be confident. Now, one effective way to get them engaged with STEM subjects is through coding. And if you can gamify it, even better. So in a bit to do just that, a company called iCode Junior has partnered with 42 schools in Abu Dhabi for... And it's sort of it ought to come with some sort of music, really. The chapter of code battle. I can do that better. The chapter of code battle. There you go. Aimed at kids from grade nine to 13 across the capital. OK, to tell me more about the contest and to laugh at me, I'm joined now in the studio by Ico Juniors, Hanan Moti. Lovely to have you in the studio. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here, Georgia. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it's it. It's great to have you here. OK, let's talk about coding because I've, I've got a 10 year old and eight year old I'd love to get them involved in it mm-hmm. but they're certainly not ready for any sort of competition at the moment so how would you suggest and when would you suggest that people should get their children in the coding zone so to speak so Georgia I think coding comes with a lot of stigma it when someone thinks of coding you're thinking of thousands of lines of code and people hacking away but that's not what coding is right 
we start our students as early as age six, to be honest, right? And at this point, we're only focusing on cognitive skill development and creative thinking, right? Children are actually just downloading software on their iPad, and they're using user interface to actually start coding where they're building animations, they're building games with colorful sprites like cats and zebras and rainbows, right? Um, that also stems as coding. It doesn't have to be just text-based coding. It doesn't have to be thousands of lines of coding, right? And, and that's what we're trying to change, that, that stigma, that, that uh, stereotypical mindset that comes with coding. We're trying to change that with iCode Junior, right? Our students, as I mentioned, we start all the way from kindergarten and we go up to grades 13. And we have dedicated programs for different age groups and grade groups, Right. Um, so, yeah, to your question, I think I think your kids are the absolute perfect age to start coding. Eight and ten is the prime. So how do you know which program to use? I mean, obviously, you're going to say ours is awesome. <laughs> so but like when you're looking online and you're trying to figure out the best style, you know, whether they should do it digitally, whether they can do it remotely or whether they should be trying to go into classrooms to do it. You know, all of these courses are extracurricular we're all a bit short of money at the moment because, frankly, school fees are going up. So this would yep. be an extra, although I do know they do it in school a bit. So what type of thing should you be looking for? Is it something that kids can just learn online with an online tutor? Yes, I believe it is. Right. Um, unfortunately, children aren't very prone to self-study. They do need a little bit of guidance, especially in a subject like coding. Right. Um, in terms of what program to use, we don't reinvent the wheel personally. We use the kind of applications that are already out there, developed by institutions like MIT. Um, they've got a wonderful platform called Scratch, which is absolutely brilliant for young coders. And that is, in fact, being taught in schools in the UAE as well, which by far is leaps and bounds ahead of several other um, you know, regions when it comes to coaching education. But we're, I still believe that we're not at par with the kind of coding education that stems from um, schools in the Western Hemisphere, right? Uh, predominantly because it was implemented a lot earlier and they have slightly, uh, they have a competitive advantage when it comes to starting with the technology. A lot of it stems from there. And that's what we try and do uh, with our academy, bridge the gap so that students that's, that, that graduate out of our program in the UAE are competitive at a global landscape. And that's where Code Battle also comes in. It's essentially a, a hackathon platform that we created to allow students to be able to compete. Um, we've done several hackathons in partnership with the UAE government and leading communities in Dubai, Sharjah and the Northern Emirates, and now in Abu Dhabi, like you mentioned, and hopefully pretty soon with other schools across the, the GCC. I want to get into the competition in a little bit more detail soon because I'm sure lots of people listening would want to get their kids involved. But how about the other side of the audience, the people thinking, yeah, but, you know, in principle, I'd like to get the children into coding, but they're really bad at maths. You know, she's more into or he's more into sport or he's more into the creative uh, sectors. You know, he's more into languages and, and, and art. Would you say that, you know, that coding could be for everyone? Or do you think you have to have a slightly mathematical brain? No, I think I think coding benefits everyone and it is designed for all um, all mindsets, right? A very important part of computer science is design. There's an entire there's an entire industry created around it called UI UX, which is user interface and user experience. So in terms of how an app should look, what kind of color should be used, where the button needs to be placed, how human psychology is involved in that, that is all part of design. Uh, designing NFTs um, 
and selling them online. We've all heard of NFTs. That's all part of design. In fact, there is one student that's from a school in, in UAE that, that's sort of the front runner of, of monetizing NFTs. She's sold NFTs over a million dirhams over the last couple of years. Very uh, cool. Quite a prodigy. Uh, but, but yeah, design is, is absolutely a pivotal part of computer science. Uh, and it's imperative that as your child explores the world of computer science, along with coding, they're also exposed to design, they're exposed to robotics, and the program that they participate in encompasses all aspects of STEM. So you've got a little bit of science, you've got engineering, you've got math, and we take STEM to a different level, and we call it STEAM, where we incorporate the element of art, and that's where design comes in. So it's, it's very difficult for a parent to know where their child would excel until they actually have them try the program. Give them exposure to various aspects. And once that's done, they know where they stand and they can help mold the child into that direction. Okay, tell me a bit more about how this competition is going to work. So you've got, uh, you've, t- you've partnered with 42 Abu Dhabi. How many schools have got involved? Right. So um, historically, we've done this competition across Sharjah, uh, Dubai and the other Northern Emirates. We've had over a thousand students participate in the past. Um, We've had over 100 schools and over 300 teams. Essentially, Code Battle is a team format hackathon. We have schools that come in that they nominate teams. So they have teams nominated in uh, three categories, grades one to four, five to eight and nine to 13. They're allowed to nominate three teams per grade group. And on the day of the hackathon, we we give out themes that the uh, students would have to make projects on. They're given a two-hour battle window during which they create the project, post which we have judges that are industry experts. They come in, they evaluate uh, the students, and then a prize is distributed to the winners. So you get prizes. Absolutely. absolutely what do you yes. win? What type of thing? Oh, um, so there's microcomputers being distributed. There wow. are gift cards. There's a lot of swag that comes from our sponsors. Um, and there's a massive trophy for the schools to look forward to. And I understand that you take this local, this regional competition, and then you take it globally. Um, we're, we're local at this point uh, so far. We've only done it in the UAE. But uh, this year, we've managed to collaborate with uh, institutions in Bahrain and Saudi. So, yeah, it's going to be the first year Code Battle go, uh, goes global. I have to say, it sounds very cool. And, and like many topics on Eye on Education, uh, I take them home into my personal life. So I have to say, I think maybe it is time for the kids to start coding. It's a great time for them to do it, of course, because it's the summer and there's not as much to do outdoors. Absolutely. So summer's, they- summer's the best possible time for parents to have their child uh, commit to coding. Uh, programs are also flexible. So in case you've got travel plans, it can be worked around that. Just dipping your toes into coding can take just one month to evaluate where your child stands. Um, and they've got an access to an area of products, right? The idea is to make sure that your child is inclined to coding. So we need to make sure that when we're, we as academics provide these programs, right, we, we, we scratch an itch, right? So our programs, for instance, revolve around coding in Minecraft or Roblox, which is one of the go-to for, for kids these days, right? Uh, and that's how we try and pique their interest. But yeah, I implore parents to try and leverage this summer to give their, their children a taste of coding and then hopefully help them explore. If my kids are listening to this, they just heard you say my Minecraft and Roblox are any excuse they're in, basically. Uh, Great to speak to you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure there are lots of children on the school run at the moment who just heard that they might get more screen time, so they are happy. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's Hanan Moti there. He is from iCode.
Code Junior. If you check it out online, it looks pretty awesome. It's codejuniors.com. Is that right? Codejuniors.com? iCodeJunior.com. iCodeJunior.com. Fantastic. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Now, the world will be celebrating World Cultural Diversity Day this Sunday. But we always like to get ahead of things here on the agenda. And it would be easy to think that we've got diversity nailed here in the UAE. After all, we've got more than 200 nationalities living right here in the Emirates. Well, that is a good box tick. So is that it sorted? Well... In the education sector, of course, diversity presents its own challenges. From multilingual pupil roles to diversities of all ability, the need for inclusion, of course, is paramount. And we wanted to use this weekend's event to delve into the realities of teaching in a diverse modern country like the UAE. And I'm delighted to say that to do that, I'm joined uh, on Teams by Nicholas Radbourne. He is Director of Studies at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Nicholas, lovely to have you join us on the line. Thank you very much indeed for your time. It is now your weekend, so I particularly appreciate you coming on the radio. How are you? Really good. Lovely to talk to you and lovely to be on the show today. Yeah, fantastic to have you. Now, of course, we have those 200 nationalities living in Dubai. What benefits does that offer the school? You know, but, but, but also what challenges does it present and how do you overcome those in a classroom environment? Well, I mean, we've got 51 nationalities anyway at RGS. Um, and I, I, I think it's really important that we kind of celebrate all those nationalities and those cultures. Um, Two of our values are inclusivity and respect, and they're kind of cores that run through our curriculum all the way, all the time. Um, I think that, I think having that massive kind of different nationalities with us um, really helps you to create a community um, that can really learn from each other. And I mean the whole community, not just the pupils in the classroom, but the parents as well. And the staff, I mean, a lot of our staff come from the UK, so they're learning all about the diversity within uh, within the school. Uh, but it's, it's really kind of celebrating those cultures, celebrating those different backgrounds, allowing the children to really get to know those, the, the other children within their community and really get to know uh, how they can relate to each other. Um, and you say sometimes, yes, we do, we do have some uh, conflicts as well, and they will fall out with each other as children do. And then we do a lot of kind of resolutions, conflict resolutions around that to kind of support them and make them understand that you've got to celebrate those differences. You've got to learn tolerance. You've got to learn difference. They've got to learn to live together in this community. Um, so we do a lot of work around that as well to kind of support. But it's a really it's a really positive thing for us. It's kind of meeting all these new uh, children meeting all these different uh, nationalities and how they actually work together and uh, and spend time together and really grow up together uh, to become good friends and uh, I, I know they will end up spending time with each other whether they're traveling to Russia whether they're traveling to uh, Jordan whether they're traveling anywhere in the world you yeah. know they'll remain friends for life yeah and I have to say I love the idea of my children 
because of course I I grew up in England. I grew up in a very white environment in the English countryside, and I love the fact that my children are growing up to be, to become global citizens with a, with a proper understanding of of what the globe looks like. Essentially, I mean, have you had to adapt your educational curriculum for this very multicultural environment? Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, we we have a moral, social, and cultural education that kind of runs through all our curriculums. Um, that kind of celebrates not only the Emirati um, culture, but also the cultures across, you know, the whole of our our community. Um, we've, we've we've worked very hard at that to make sure the children understand the diversity that there is around the world and the diversity within their own community and the people sat next to them, you know, how different they are and their cultures and so forth. So we do a lot of work around that. Uh, we do a lot of work in our PSHE lessons to kind of develop uh, their personal and social understanding uh, of working with each other. Um, but we also do uh, different things. We, For instance, uh, Year 7s at the moment are doing some work around the Crusades but we're not looking at it from a completely British standpoint. We're looking at a global kind of picture of what that looks like um, and the, you know, the effect that had globally. So looking at the relationship between Saladin and Richard I, you know, kind of looking at it from a different viewpoint, how, how that affected and how that culture then was taken back to um, Europe to actually enhance the European um, kind of culture. So Gosh, it, yeah. it's, it's kind of wide rent. That is fascinating. You really get a sense of that in history, of course. So, you know, even distant history of how tricky it must be potentially in the classroom because of the obvious sensitivities there. How about um, the fact that obviously many of the school communities here are not just multicultural, but of course, multilingual. Now, that is a topic that's come up quite a bit over the last few months because so many people have moved new into the country and maybe their children might not have English or Arabic as their first languages. Have you found that a, a challenge in your classrooms? Yeah, very much so. I, I, but it's it's kind of a good challenge. Uh, I think it teaches children a love of language, um, which I, I don't think we celebrate enough almost. Um, the children within our community are learning three or four different languages and they, they've often got languages themselves. I love working with our year sevens at the moment because they, they're teaching each other to teach to learn each other's, you know, kind of language. I bet of, they I've pick got... certain words and phrases, though, first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you are, I'm sure I don't not to in... say about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure not I, in yes, front of probably, you. Probably, probably. <laughs> you know, but there's a, there's, there's a real joy about the fact they want to learn, a, you know, how, how somebody else speaks and certain languages that they haven't worked with before. But I think that joy of language and really kind of encourage them to you know learn different languages not just french and spanish but it may be russian obviously arabic is a core here um but it's that sort of excitement around languages that they they you know some of our children speak four or five languages already so they have you know head start on me for instance they're gonna have um, a head start in life aren't they this is what this is what's yeah. crazy and and that's what's so wonderful about the the sort of education here in this country is that they are getting that that global lens on the world even if they you know stay here for the rest of their lives they will have this wonderful perspective nicholas it's been a great pleasure to have you on the agenda as always thank you very much for coming on eye on education the voice you've just 
been hearing there is Nicholas Radborn. He's Director of Studies at RGS Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are discussing how diversity works in practice inside the classrooms. That is, of course, ahead of World Cultural Diversity Day this Sunday, something that is sort of celebrated even without us realising pretty much every day here in the UAE. But can you imagine a school that's designed to provide a fully immersive cultural experience? Now, a little while back, Ion Education took the opportunity to travel, albeit virtually all around the world, speaking to educators who teach their children in unusual schools. And that journey took us everywhere from a Bangladeshi boat school to a jungle academy in Bali and a beach classroom in Australia. And today we thought we'd revisit a school that we thought about often. And it's one based at sea. I sat down with teacher Adam Rule, who's the Director of Admissions and Business Development at the A Plus World Academy. And I began by asking him to describe his very unusual school. We are outside of the box in pretty much every way at A Plus World Academy. So we are on the oldest active fully rigged tall ship in the world. And that is a Norwegian tall ship called the SS Sorlanda. It's a 212 foot or 65 meter tall ship. And so our students join us for their uh, the full school year and their classroom is actually on the ship. And so every class is conducted in our ship, but we take that ship around the world. So we travel to 15 cities, 12 countries, cross the Atlantic Ocean twice. So that's where our classroom is located. Okay, that is just totally wild. Do the students join for the entire year? Does that mean they basically don't go home for a year? That's right. So our students join. We take one cohort of up to 64 students, between 60 and 64 students every year, and they're with us for 10 months straight. So they get two weeks off in our parent ports. But other than that, they're with the program. And we found that that is the method that's best for creating, I mean, one of the best communities I've experienced in education. So yeah, that's what we do. Okay, so I went to boarding school, so I know what it's like to be away from your parents for a certain length of time, but not that long. Do they literally not see their parents? Some students might literally not see their families for 10 months straight. And so we are asking a lot. You know, we only take students who are aged between some 15-year-olds, but through 19 years old. So those are the only age range we take. So they're a little bit more mature is the hope. Um, But, you know, homesickness is absolutely going to be a part of the experience. And that's an expectation for us. We train our staff to be prepared for that. We communicate that with the students that that's something that they can plan on feeling. We prepare the parents because sometimes they miss the kids more than the kids miss the the parents. Then we handle it as it comes. But it's funny how much you've learned to love a family member when you're away from them for 10 months. So Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like the most incredibly intense experience. I presume that the children are the crew as well as the pupils. That's right. They're students, adventurers. You know, they are part of the maritime crew. They're doing at least four hours of maritime responsibilities a day, two during the day between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. and two in the night between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. And that's a rotating schedule through the year. And so they're involved in everything from the the maintenance of the ship in terms of painting and cleaning and preparing food and serving meals, uh, as well as actually sailing the ship, learning the lines, climbing the masts, going out on the yards, dropping the sail. They're involved in pretty much every aspect of the program. And it's pretty cool to see how they get to, to grow with us for the year. Do you have a, a mix of girls and boys and, and where do they all come from? Our program is, is you know, we're on the Norwegian tall ship. And so uh, there's that strong tie to the Norwegian heritage. So we take students that are from all over the world, but 
at least 50% of our students are going to be from Norway. And then the other 50% are going to be from countries from around the world. So that's Peru, Brazil, Japan, Austria, the United States, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Bermuda. So we take students from all over. And every year, you know, we're growing our international student uh, footprint. This year, we've had uh, this last graduating class was 80% female, 20% male. But yeah, this, this upcoming year is, is closer to 50-50. And that's our goal is to have 50% male students, 50% female students. So we got a little bit of a hint there of what the school day looks like, because on top of managing the ship and the tasks and the jobs there, of course, they got to do their GCSEs or their A-levels or whatever exams they are meant to be preparing for. Yeah, that's right. We teach American curriculum. So they're taking their AP classes for a school first that ties in all of these other elements. The teachers are giving in-person classes on the ship with the students. Uh, Those teachers double as mentors as well as teachers. Okay, so give me a little bit of a sense of a day. Yeah, so a typical day at sea, you know, so we only do classes while we're sailing. So when students are sailing from France to Portugal or, you know, they're sailing from Puerto Rico to Bermuda, you know, while we're at sea is when we have our classes. And and those days look very similar. Students are up at 6.55, lights are on in the banyard where they sleep. Uh, They sleep in hammocks. So all the students are in hammocks in the ship. So they're up at 7. We have a communal breakfast. At 8 a.m., we're on the main deck of the ship where we do our muster, and that's where we go through daily news. We talk about uh, how we've sailed over the last 24 hours. We talk about anything going on specifically for that day. And then we clean the ship for 45 minutes. So everyone from the teachers to the maritime crew to the students are cleaning the ship for 45 minutes. And then after that, we're breaking off into those maritime responsibilities as well as classes. So some students are you know, in their their AP psychology course, and some students are doing homework for their biology class that's at uh, you know, 11 a.m. And some students are climbing the masts and, you know, moving the sails so that we end up, you know, where we where we need to go. So that's kind of what we do from 9 a.m. until lunchtime, which is at 1130. And then at 1130, we have the first cycle of lunch. And then at 12, we have the second cycle of lunch. Uh, we have a small break in the afternoon. And then we pick up classes again at two o'clock from 1400 until dinner time, which is at 1800. Uh, we have classes uh, in the same same kind of scenario where students are, you know, taking their math classes, science classes, English, or they're doing their maritime responsibilities, or they're doing free time, which is which is a lot of fun because one of the unique parts of our program is that we don't have internet on the ship. And so students are actively engaged in real relationships on the ship. It's not a digital world for us. It's a tangible, real, physical place where we exist and get to interact with one another. So that's crafts and board games and dance club and exercising and some movie watching, of course, but uh, listening to music, reading, writing, painting. So that's what students do in their free time. And then we have dinner. And then after dinner, I think the the best part of the program begins. That's when we have the clubs and the evening activities. So that's going to be karaoke, hula club, dance club, coding club, my favorite baking club. Uh, We get into the, the kitchen, bake, have a dance party. And then, of course, you get to eat chocolate chip cookies and, you know, whatever we make. So I think that's the best. So that's, that's a typical day. And then uh, lights out at uh, nine, quiet hour until 10. And then it's uh, to bed. And we repeat that cycle until we arrive in the next city that we're visiting. Wow. Okay. It just sounds very, very cool. It sounds very, very intense. What happens when you get to port? Because you said that lessons stop then, because I guess, mm-hmm. you know, you have to explore. And how do you choose which ports to stop at? So in, in terms of ports, we're picking places that are, of course, accessible, you know, that have an accessible first ship um, and then have you know, good cultural background, interesting things for the students to do while they're there, as well as being good hubs for, for, for the sailing community where we can go and they are able to, 
to take a ship like ours in. So that's St. Malo, France, that's Setubal, Portugal, Cartagena, Spain, uh, Madeira, Portugal, Las Palmas, Canary Islands, Cabo Verde, Africa. And we cross the Atlantic Ocean and we work our way from Granada, St. Martin, Bequia, Puerto Rico, Bermuda, back across the Atlantic to Azores. Uh, and then we're in the Netherlands. Um, we're in uh, a surprise port. And so that's a port where the students get to collaborate with the crew and pick a place to go. This year it was Copenhagen and then back to Norway where we finished the school year. So that's our voyage plan. We'll be repeating that. Um, and then, yeah, when we get into port, I think I like being at sea. I think sea life is, is amazing. But I think one of the, you know, the amazing parts of the program is the fact that students are getting the chance to travel to all of these unique locations. And so when we're in port, we really have four specific types of activities. Uh, one is going to be still continuing their maritime responsibilities. So doing gangway watch, you know, making sure things are safe on the ship. Uh, the second activity is going to be an academic day where we get the chance to go to a local high school where we're visiting and the students get to interact with peers from the places that we visit, as well as use their facilities that we might not have access to to do physics labs, biology labs, use their computer for further research. And then the third activity is field experiences that we integrate in both service learning as well as cultural experiences and, and a little adventure as well. So that's um, everything from helping with the ecological restoration in Bermuda to cleaning out the canals and doing a canal tour through Amsterdam to whitewater rafting, hiking, waterfall lagoon swimming, snorkeling, chocolate factory tours. And then the fourth activity that we, we have, students are able to go and explore the cities on their own while we're in port, which is anywhere between five and 10 days. It sounds completely out of this world, doesn't it? That's Adam Rule, the Director of Admissions and Business Development at the A-plus World Academy. Now, I'm sure there's just one question on your lips as to how much it costs. Well, I'm pleased to say uh, that coming up in the next few minutes, I did ask Adam that exact question. And we will find out how much uh, a year that school will cost you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Welcome back to the agenda. Welcome back to Eye on Education. And it's time for us to find out how much that school is going to cost. Yeah, before the break, we were discussing the A-plus World Academy, which is a boarding school on a Norwegian tall ship. Now, if you're lucky enough to go to the school, you get to sail around the world while completing your studies and, of course, becoming fully immersed in the cultures of other countries. Now, teacher Adam Rule has already told us about the route they take around the world and how they spend their days. But I also wanted to find out how much the school costs. Key question. So the price is fairly high. The Norwegian students have a special price that they get for being Norwegian. Um, They get a special government grant. But our non-Norwegian students, the price is fairly high. It's 61,000 euro for the school year. And I think that we give the, the families back at least as much as, as, they're, as they're paying, if not more. Um, and so we're, I'm pretty happy with, with the, the kind of experience that we've crafted for the students who join and the kind of student we're looking for. I think, you know, we kind of have two, two groups here. We have the students who are interested and then we have the, the parents who are interested and the best is to find the blend of the, the, families, the families who are interested. And so for students, I'm looking for adventurous, curious, compassionate, uh, creative students. Um, who are who are willing to 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 put themselves out of their comfort zone? Like you said, it's an intense program, um, but for the students and the right kind of student, this will be a life changing experience that doesn't really you can't go back the same person that you joined at the beginning of the year. And then for families, I'm looking for families that are kind of outside the box thinkers. This is an outside the box program, so a lot of the times we're meeting families who are entrepreneurial, who are used to the adventure component. We're asking students to live together 
in a confined space for 10 months. And so it's, uh, I, I need them to be respectful of others, compassionate, curious of other people's cultures so that they can learn new things. That's what we're looking for at A+. Is it ever scary? Because I mean, my sister's crossed the Atlantic and she described some of the yeah. nighttime sailing as really quite daunting. And you guys are in this massive old fashioned tall ship. I mean, it's, it's the most extraordinary vessel. Yeah, it is beautiful. And I think, you know, there's a lot of pride in the fact that our students are involved in maintaining and sailing the ship around. Um, but you know, I mean, okay, there's, there's, there's my perspective. I would be scared in some of these circumstances, but the students seem to love the experience for the most part. That is Adam Rule there. He is a teacher aboard that extraordinary boat-based school. It's called the A-plus World Academy. And certainly, if I could afford it, I would love to send the children on it. What would you do? Do you think it's too long? Because it's a boarding school, of course. Fascinating stuff and great to get Adam Rule, Director of Admissions and Business Development from the A-plus World Academy, on the agenda and on Eye on Education. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.